The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 1077The Bronc, 1077TheBronc.com, proudly nominated for National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios at Ryder University. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and the Ryder University Health Studies Institute present Health 411, truthful health information to expand knowledge and perspective. This radio program communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Today, Tommy Franks and Isaac Harris and I are going to have a conversation about sickle cell diseases. Welcome, guys. Uh, thank Hello. you. Uh, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all of you. New Year. Um, and so this, this conversation was stimulated uh, because I was uh, sort of trolling um, the New England Journal of Medicine, and I found an article that has the sort of, um, you know, uh, scientific nerd, medical nerd sounding title called Post-Transcriptional Genetic Silencing of BCL-11A to Treat Sickle Cell Disease. Um, and if you guys had come across that, you would have very quickly skipped it <laughs> and ignored it based on just on that title and like you're nodding. Um, but I was intrigued by that because what this was telling me, it was a genetic manipulation in people to treat something called sickle cell disease. So what I thought we would do today is provide a little bit of background um, about uh, normal physiology, what is sickle cell disease, and it's actually more than one disease. Um, it includes things like sickle cell anemia, thalassemia, um, and related blood disorders. And what this, this paper was talking about is a genetic therapy to treat that, which was sort of cool. So I thought we would do a little bit of um, sort of a, a, a an anatomy and physiology discussion here. And then we'll talk about what's cool about that paper that was actually using a, um, a technique that can change somebody's genes to treat a genetic disorder. Sound like an idea? Sounds good. Okay. Um, so let, let's just start with a, with a discussion about what happens sort of in normal physiology. In normal physiology, we have red blood cells. We have red blood cells uh, even before we're born. We have um, red blood cells while we are in utero. The red blood cells in utero do the same sort of thing that red blood cells in adults do. Their main job is to deliver oxygen to our, our, our organs of our body, our brain, our spleen, our liver, our, all the organs. 
there delivers it. But while we're in utero, the way that the red blood cells deliver um, oxygen to our organs is they capture it um, in a in a molecule called hemoglobin. And what's unique is in 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 utero before you're born, you have your body the body or the the bone marrow where the, the red blood cells are sort of born, um, make something called fetal, fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin is an iron-containing molecule, but in that iron-containing molecule are two um, uh, change, chains. There's an alpha and a gamma chain that's called a, a, a globin, that's a hemoglobin. So in fetal hemoglobin, there's a mixture of these alpha and gamma chains that sort of allow the red blood cells to capture oxygen from the maternal circulation and deliver it to the fetal circulation. Make sense? And that allows our organs to grow before we're born. After we're, after we're born, there's something called hemoglobin switching that takes place around two to four months after we're born. After we're born, you, the, the hemoglobin that is made in the bone marrow of a newborn human infant changes a little bit. And one of the things that changes is now that because the, the hemoglobin is no longer taking oxygen from the placenta, from the mother, and delivering it to target orange. Now, the hemoglobin is taking oxygen from, the, from air exchange, <clears throat> exchange of gases in the lungs and delivering it to the organs of the body, and the hemoglobin is you know, made in the bone marrow. What happens is, in that hemoglobin switching, the gamma globin protein molecule gets turned off, and instead, another um, uh, globin is made, it's called beta globin. So what happens in adult hemoglobin, the hemoglobin that you have, that I have, that normal people have, has alpha and beta globin um, proteins in it to help carry oxygen around to deliver it all over to the body. And that's the normal case. Um, however, like most things in biology, sometimes things go wrong and something happens. Because these chains, these alpha, beta, and these gamma um, globin you know, molecules that make up, that are part of the, he the he part of hemoglobin, um, um, are made by our body, genes control them. Genes control their expression, genes can turn them on, and genes can turn them off. And that, 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 that weird sounding thing that I mentioned before, BCL11A, is a sort of a, a, it's a transcriptional factor. It's something that suppresses the fetal hemoglobin um, expression of the gamma globin. So what happens when, after you're born, a few months after you're born, when you do hemoglobin switching, if you are normal, you switch from a primarily fetal hemoglobin, which has the gamma globin, to adult hemoglobin, which has the beta globin to help carry oxygen around if you're normal. That BCL11A is a gene that suppresses that expression of the gamma globin. That sort of makes sense in the normal thing as you move from he fetal hemoglobin to adult hemoglobin. Basic anatomy and physiology thing. Well, what happens is in some people, um, there are genetic defects in adult hemoglobin. 
those genetic defects can either take place because you don't have the right ratio to alpha or to alpha globin to beta globin, and that's a blood disorder or a, um, a, a called thalassemia, or what you have is a genetic mutation in the genetic code for the beta subunit. Remember, that's the subunit that gets turned on after you're born. If you have a genetic mutation, so that your beta you know, um, globin is not, doesn't have the right code for it, it's not working efficiently, that creates something that is called sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease in its most severe form is something called the sickle cell anemia um, that many of us have heard about. It's a blood-borne disorder, it's a genetic disorder that if you have the recessive trait from both your biological parents, you will have some this sickle cell disorder that results in the inability of your adult hemoglobin to efficiently carry oxygen around the body. In its most significant severe form, the hemoglobin molecule, when it's deoxygenated, actually causes the red blood cell to collapse upon itself. And instead of being a nice round oval red blood cell, it becomes a sickle, a sickle shaped cell and hence something called sickle cell anemia. And what happens is if red blood cells are no longer around and they become sickle shaped, they're not only not delivering appropriate amounts of oxygen to your to all the organs of your body, but what happens is they, they can clog the capillaries, which are the very, very fine sort of pathways, the tubes through which blood is delivered to your target, target organs of your body. So in somebody who has, you know, the, the, you know, sickle cell anemia, they've got two mutations in the, in the beta globin gene. Um, and so their hemoglobin um, is not effective to develop sickle cells. And so what's happened is when hemoglobin switching has happened and that gene BCL 11A gets sort of activated and it suppresses gamma globin, that what happens after that is their, their ability of all the organs of their body to have the oxygen it needs for aerobic metabolism to stay alive becomes diminished and abnormal. Did I sort of cap did, did I sort of capture some you know basic anatomy and physiology here? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Yes, you so, did. So, so good. So that's sort of like just basic fundamental anatomy and physiology. And then what we're going to do in our next segment, because we're running out of time in this one, is we'll talk a little bit about what happens and this really cool paper um, when they did some post-transcriptional genetic silencing of the BCL11A gene to treat the sickle cell disease results of what we just talked about. So we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 
1077 The Bronx or 1077thebronc.com. Recording from the remote Bronx studio. So welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Tommy Franks and Isaac Harris, our producers. And in today's segment, we are talking about sickle cell disease. Uh, and uh, I provided some sort of biological background to sickle cell disease. And quickly, what I said, in a sense, was a, it's an autosomal recessive inherited disorder uh, where the beta hemoglobin chain um, is, doesn't have the right code for it. There's a substitution and um, people have anemia, they have, uh, can have strokes, uh, embolisms, almost every organ of the body can be affected from the brain to your lungs, to the uh, gastrointestinal system, to bones, there's leg ulcers, even a lot, oh, every part of the body which requires blood and oxygen to work at optimal levels can be compromised. And what's interesting is that this is a genetic disorder. This is something that you inherit from your parents. And what happens is, if, in normal physiology, there's a gene, the BCL11A gene, and it suppresses the production of fetal hemoglobin a few months after you're born. It suppresses what's actually the, the gamma subunit <clears throat> that makes fetal hemoglobin, and that allows your body to make adult hemoglobin that has that beta chain, which, which is sort of abnormal. And um, Isaac, you said you had a couple questions that right. were so, about the disease itself before we talk about what the methods and what they actually did in the paper. So, if it's in, so since the sickle cell anemia is inherited, what's like some of the on what's the what's some of the like ongoing like I guess like notable like genetic mutations that you see with someone with sickle cell, and and how do you treat those things? Okay, so. Uh, that, that, that's an excellent question because the fact that some people have uh, these red blood cells that have acquired a sort of a non-round sickle shape um, has been known for quite a long time. I want to say you know, 80, 100 years. So it's been, it's been quite a while. It's been recognized. And a lot of things have been tried. Um, until fairly recently, there wasn't much you can do because it was a genetic disorder. So people would treat the pain. Um, with drugs, uh, people the, the people do a lot of different things. The if somebody has genes from both parents and has true sickle cell anemia, their lifespans are cut a little bit short compared to the normal population. Um, I think untreated, it's somewhere between forty and sixty years you live um, in the most severe forms of sickle cell anemia, where the you know, the regular population of non-affected people might live to 70 or 80 years old. Um, and there really wasn't much you could do. Uh, however, um, in, the, in the recent decades, treatments have been developed. And the, the most effective way to treat this disorder is to use a, um, a basically a transplant. The idea is if you can find somebody, usually a sibling, a twin if you have one, so you'd be very lucky, Isaac, because you have a yeah. <laughs> brother. Yeah, I guess so. If, if you happen to have sickle cell anemia and your twin didn't, 
which would, I guess it wouldn't happen, but if you had a brother or sister, you could use, if you have somebody who's a genetic match, and the idea would be you could use chemothera chemotherapeutic drugs to destroy the red blood cell making cells in your bone marrow. And then it gets replaced with bone marrow from a genetically related donor. And the, uh, hopefully, if everything worked, you could cure the disease by removing your abnormal cells, putting in fresh new cells, and having your body take over the production of hopefully um, non-defective beta um, uh, globin uh, molecules for your red blood cells in your body. And I think that's the most effective. There are some drug treatments like hydroxyurea, which is something that's supposed to help stimulate fetal hemoglobin production. But the idea is if you could have your body start making non-defective beta globin and put it in the red blood cells in the right place, you could treat the disease. Um, I think that's, that, and that's important as we move ahead and start talking about the, the research paper that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. Did I answer your question? Yes, yes you did, yes you did. It, and actually, that actually does make sense that it's like a lot of, that uh, they use a lot of bone marrow. I am surprised that you mentioned it was twins, that, uh, that is, are twins usually the most successful transplants uh, well, or did you have someone? In a sense, I misspoke a little bit because if you okay, truly are, I, if you really are identical twins, you're both gonna have the genetic right. <laughs> greens and so you'd basically be swapping, you know. Sickle cells. You know, yeah, yeah, be swapping sickle cells. But yeah, the, the genetic code for making sickle, uh, uh, sickle cells. So that, that, I take that back. That might have not have been the best way to, to put it forward. But the idea is if you have a closely related, now, I, I did read in preparation for this, something like um, a large percentage, something like 80% of the people who have, the, uh, you know, sickle cell anemia, cannot undergo transplants because they can, they cannot find somebody who's a close enough genetic match kinds of mm -hmm. thing. Right. and that's actually a very uh that keep that in the back of your mind as we launch into um what they actually did in the paper that that, that stirred my interest in this um anything any other questions popping i think your you had a two-part question i think i only answered the first part what was the other half of your question isaac you remember no, you for me you answered both parts. I oh. feel like I felt comfortable because you answered both parts because it was just asking about uh, just alternative. How what do you how, what do you do to treat it now? And like is since it's genetic, so that yes. that was that was the whole overall. It sounded like a two part, but it was really like a just a big one part. <laughs> cool. And so what's interesting about that? It, it is a genetic disorder, and there that you it can be treated, but it's only a small percentage of the patients are able to find a genetic match and be able to undergo that sort of transfusion therapy. That is sort of the background for the paper, Post-Transcriptional Genetic Silencing of the BCL11A to treat sickle cell disease. So to bring it back to this paper, what's actually sort of cool, um, what they did in this paper was they took um, patients, who had the sickle cell disease, um, uh, thalassemia or um, sickle cell disease, and they took out some of their own um, bloodline precursor cells. And when you guys are reading it, that's what they call the CD34 positive cells. These are cells that are destined to be red blood cell making cells in someone's body, and they probably got these 
from people's bone marrow. Then what they did was they chemically suppressed these people to sort of, you did an immunosuppressive therapy, or in this case, a tomatopoietic suppressive therapy. They gave them some chemo drugs that knocked out their own red blood making capabilities in their bone marrow. But that was in the patients. Well, then they took these CD34 positive cells, these are cells that are destined to make red blood cells, and they manipulated them in vitro. And what they did to those cells is they used a, a, a viral vector. And if you know how viruses work, viruses work by taking their genetic material, injecting it into cells, and then the cells take up that genetic material as if it was their own. But in this case, they used, um, they injected, in, they put in the virus um, a gene that inhibits the production of the BCL11A. And the, if, just to say it again, the BCL11A is a, is a transcriptional inhibitor of the gamma globin, the fetal hemoglobin um, type. Uh, phenotype. And so what they put in these in these precursor cells or riblet cells in vitro was something that's going to inhibit an inhibitor. And so what so if you inhibit an inhibitor, it's like in math, it, a double negative results in a positive. You guys remember that a little bit? Yes. So in, in adults you have this active suppression of fetal hemoglobin and what they did though is they took these patients' own cells, they turned off that suppression, and then put the cells back into the patients, right? Which was actually pretty cool. And, you know, uh, previous studies have shown that something, if you could get fetal hemoglobin levels up from, you know, one, two percent, because in, in adults are almost nothing, to somewhere around 20 percent, you have. Um, a wide amount of reduction of sickle cell disease symptoms in people. And they achieved that. So they used sort of this technique of, um, of microRNA inhibition it, using these viral vectors. They put these, vi these transformed cells back into the patients from which they came. So there was no issue about matching people with tissue types because these were their own cells, right? So it was, a, it was a complete genetic match. And then they put these people, you put these cells back into the people, and then they, these people started making, these are adults, started making fetal hemoglobin, even though they're adults. Wow. Because they removed the genetic suppression. Right? So if you remove the suppression, you generate this activation of fetal hemoglobin. And we'll talk about the, what the clinical results of these people were after we take a break for some underwriting. And you can marvel in this technique um, as you're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 
1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios at Rider University. You're listening to Health 411. Today on the program, we are talking about sickle cell diseases like thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. And these are diseases that have a genetic basis. And at the end of the last segment, I talked, I just I went over sort of the basic framework from a, from a recent paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where they silenced a, a, a gene that is involved with the active suppression of fetal hemoglobin in people. And if you inhibit an inhibitor, you affect release the inhibition. And it, it was a genetic manipulation where they allowed adults to start making fetal hemoglobin again. And the idea being is if you can increase fetal hemoglobin levels, you can sort of reduce the symptoms and all the pain, the disruption of blood flow, and deliver oxygen into the, all the organs of the body in, in, a, in humans in such a way that they will not suffer the multi-organ damage and potentials from stroke and things like that that are characteristic of sickle cell diseases. And um, in the break, Isaac, you mentioned that you had, it, my, as I was sort of talking, you had some thoughts or some questions that came up in your mind. So basically from what you were talking about summarizing the study so far and what I, what I took in as from what you said and what I read is that literally this uh, therapy kind of eliminates the factor of hoping for a genetic donor. Kind of, it kind of gives like, you know, it's like you're like, it's like the person who has sickle cell is kind of donating the cells back to themselves. Like they get better. That, if, if I'm not mistaken. You're, you are not mistaken. You're, you're bingo, you know, yeah. Stand up and yell bingo. Cause you got it. <laughs> and, 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 and that's one of the coolest things about this, 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 this sort of idea in science is that if you had the technology to do this and to do it safely, you don't have to wait for a organ donor, or in this case, a hematopoietic cell line donor to help treat the disease because you can manipulate your own cells, you know, outside your body and then put your own cells back in. So you don't have to worry about your body rejecting the new cells that are put in, or something called graft versus host disease, which is a rejection of the what you put in against the body. So you don't have to worry about immunological rejection because you're really using your own cells. You've just changed um, what proteins they're expressing. You know, um, DNA makes RNA makes proteins. You're just sort of, you know, changing what's happening inside the cell without changing all those cell markers that your body would recognize as a foreign invasion so, so is it almost so is it almost like self-recycling is that a term i can use for this or um, there, that's like not the uh, you, you can know. use that term but you would have made that up <laughs> yeah exactly like is that something i can make up and say it's like self-recycling for this or just I like think, you know? but there, there is a term it's auto there's a there's um there's a the, a the term uh there's different kinds of transplants like those allographic transplants, when you have somebody who's a tissue mat, these are autographic right. transplants. So you're, you, there is a term for that, but it's like self, you know, self donation, self transplant. So uh, right. yeah, so there, there there is a term for that, and it it actually is is pretty cool. And what's interesting about this paper and these re this research is going on, and I want to point out um, this is a paper that. It was done in a small number of patients. It's only six patients that they're reporting 
Um, and the follow-up has been, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, up to 18 months at the time this, that this was published. So this research is all going on and they will do more patients, they will do more patients. But this is something that looked out because, you know, um, the, you know, you know, the, so the clinic, no, I'll read right from the paper, no patient had vaso-occlusive crisis, acute chest syndrome, or stroke since the gene therapy infusion. That's pretty amazing for somebody who has, um, you know, I use the word suffering, suffering with like a severe sickle cell disease um, their entire lives since they've done it. And this is um, phenomenal. And the, the major problems related seem to be related to, you know, the immunosuppressive treatment because you have to knock out all the bad blood making cells to get this thing going, which is sort of cool. Um, so it is, the, the reason that I wanted to talk about it is can we talk on a program like Health 411, you look at, you know, this is not, you can't go to your local GP and say, hey, look, I have sickle cell anemia. I want you to do this on me right now. But this is sort of like one of those things where eventually they're going to be probably be able to identify people at younger, at younger and younger ages and actually at some point treat children with this. To, to sort of uh, fix a genetic defect, a genetic problem. And which leads, leads to an interesting question to talk about is, you know, if this is, this, if this is, if these are things that are passed on from parents, right? At some point in your, you know, high school or early biology classes, you're told genes that have some sort of survival value are promoted through the germline and are passed on to children. Genes that are, that, you know, do not promote um, some sort of survival, don't, don't have some sort of survival benefit are eliminated from the germline and are not passed out. And the question then comes, why are you humans especially humans of either African or South Asian, so Middle Eastern Mediterranean descent, why are they passing on these genes for what we would call abnormal hemoglobin, which results in abnormal red blood cell function? What do you guys think? Why is that happening in a world where you're taught, you know, sort of the rules of you know, evolution by natural selection, you're taught that only beneficial genes are passed on? Um, are they, is it because like over time, are they turning into the dominant gene? Um, uh, that could, you know, theoretically that could happen, except for the fact that if it's a, if it's a genetic mutation that causes people to die and have organ failure and pain, there's no survival benefit for that. Right, right. That's why I'm like, I'm thinking like, I don't know if you know if that's even the right thing to say, because I'm like, I'm like, I feel like over time it would just like, it carry on like if one person like like I was thinking like maybe in the logic of like if someone has red hair and you marry someone that has blonde hair and the red hair just kind of sticks through every other generation that's what I was thinking <laughs> well is that the same way with sickle cell but I mean obviously that that doesn't make sense too if cells are obviously just like removing themselves if it's if it doesn't seem survivable so I don't know that's an interesting yeah, yeah, question yeah, yes yes you're, you're making stuff up but oh, yeah <laughs> but yeah I figured let's, let's talk about so let's take a, a step back and think about this, the, these from the sort of the cell biology of changing the expression of genes in these cells. If you step back and look at the populations of people who 
are still carrying this, which as I mentioned, it's usually um, South Asia, Mediterranean, Middle East, and, and Africa. Um, um, there are different forms of all this, but the, a common feature is places uh, where humans live that seem to be passing on these recessive genes for these, this abnormal beta globin that is part of hemoglobin tend to, these are people who tend to live in areas of the world where malaria is still prevalent. You guys have heard of malaria? Yes. yes. Cool. And malaria had, was, was in the news recently um, because of in, during this COVID-19 thing, because one of the malarial treatments for people is something called, um, you know, uh, chloroquinine, you know, hydroxychloroquine. That's one of the things that President Bush, I mean, not President, President Trump was promoting um, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, which ended up not working out. But malaria is a parasitic disease. And as a parasitic disease of people, um, malaria can cause fevers, can cause organ damage. It's, it's sort of a nasty disease. But the way people get malaria is they're bitten by mosquitoes that carry this parasite. Mosquitoes then inject the parasite into the human bloodstream. And in the human bloodstream, part of the life cycle of the, the parasite, that, the para, one of the many parasites that causes um, malaria, because there's a couple different kinds of it, exists in red blood cells. So human red blood cells become part of the life cycle of the malaria parasite. It ends up being red blood cells in people that have the sickle shape or have the defective beta globin protein in it, right? Sort of stop or slow down the life cycle of the malarian parasite. So the malaria is less likely to kill you if you have sickle cell red blood cells, which is sort of interesting. Now, if you are homozygic, which means you get the defect from both your parents, the recessive parents, you die a pretty early death. However, if you are heterozygotic, which means you have one normal beta globin and one abnormal beta globin, you're sort of on the cusp of sickle cell anemia, um, you actually survive malaria infections better than somebody who does not have one of those mutations. So the malaria hypothesis of the sickle cell disease is that um, this particular genetic mutation provides a survival advantage to people who live in areas where there's a lot of malaria and there are no anti-malarial drugs and stuff like that. So it's a naturally occurring mutation that in a first world country could end up being bad for you, but in a country where malaria is rampant, it actually has some survival benefit. And uh, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about this after some underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 The Bronx.com. 
Welcome back to Health 411 on the Remote Bronx Studios. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Tommy Franks and Isaac Harris, our producers. And Tommy, you had a thought while we were in the break. What, uh, what did our conversation stimulate in your brain? So, you know, as a student athlete at Ryder, I was, you know, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, obviously not having the sickle cell disease, but rather the traits for it. And um, when you pass it down uh, genetically, what kind of effect could it have on an athlete potentially, the traits of it? Um, well, uh, that's an interesting question because some people who have uh, thalassemia, uh, which is abnormal amounts of the uh, alpha and beta subunits um, in adult hemoglobin, um, or people who might only have one of the genes um, for sickle cell disease, um, sometimes their symptoms um, are really not there until the people uh, put themselves in a low oxygen environment, uh, where which and part of that might be a, phys a like extreme physical output that's associated with athletics, and that's where blood blockages like blood occlusions could be stroke or pulmonary embolisms or uh, even blood clots in the legs things that can happen where either oxygen is not getting the target organs or these abnormal cells, these red blood cells that have an unusual shape, can't get through capillaries, um, causing pain. Um, all those things can be made worse by people being in low oxygen environments. Um, and, and low oxygen environments is not just, you know, climbing, you know, the, the Rockies or some high mountains, it can also, I can imagine it existing because people are exerting themselves. Too. Okay. Interesting. I can't imagine that happening. And that's, uh, yeah. So that, I think that would exa exasperate some of the, the, the symptoms of the disease. Hmm. Um, I want to point out that I didn't share this one with you, but that same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine um, that had the post-transcriptional genetic silencing of the BCL11A, um, yeah. that, that, that transcriptional inhibitor, also had an article in it um, using another technique. So instead, not only using this micro RNA uh, technique to change people's genes, um, just this past year, somebody won a Nobel Prize, or two women won a Nobel Prize, two women scientists, for developing something called the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. Um, and in that same paper, it was only two patients, but that is another genetic technique. It's a way of changing people's genes, putting the cells back into them, and having the corrected genetic information. In this case, it was a company that has a technique they call CTX001, where they use this CRISPR, -Cas, you know, CAS9 um, uh, technique to take people's cells out, fix a genetic mutation, and put the cells back in. Um, and the idea is that we are on the cusp of genetic engineering um, in ways that are going to potentially be able to fix diseases that are related to, at least in this case, single gene mutations, which is pretty cool looking forward as we look to health you know, um, health, we ask, what is the chef of the future in healthcare? Well, a lot of it is probably going to be genetic manipulations of our own cells and then using our own cells that have been fixed to fix the cells that are not working right. And I think that's pretty cool. Wow, yeah. 
And I was, why were you guys talking to just some athletes? I just found a couple athletes that, or it's the NCAA actually has like some protocol regarding to athletes with sickle cell. And there's been a couple, yeah. Then there's been a couple actually athletes with sickle cell that are in the NBA um, that are playing professionally overseas in the NBA. A couple of them to be notable um, is a guy named Billy Garrett Jr. Uh, He graduated in 2017, played at DePaul for four years, and he plays in Europe. And mm-hmm. he talks about how he has to get extra water breaks regarding to coaches have to be more cautious with him regarding with sickle cell. And then also an NBA player named Willie Colley Stein has, um, has the hereditary trait for a uh, sickle cell anemia. So, I mean, there's some athletes that are going through it and somehow managing it and making it through, which is interesting to your point, Dr. Kirk, which I find interesting. I'm like, wow, there's actually people doing this at the highest level potentially, not just at like the youth and high school and college. So there are some, some some people are finding a way to go through it, which is I find incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And what you're saying too is that if you happen to have, um, you know, uh, some of these genetic markers, it doesn't mean you can't be an athlete. It doesn't mean you have to be a couch potato. Um, but it, it 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 sounds like that these people have it identified. They know about it, and they're they're, they're it'll be interesting to follow these people because it, if they're relatively young and they're healthy and they're well conditioned. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they get older and become a little bit less well conditioned um, to see what, you know, just what the long term consequences of that are. Right. And to add to that, also, it's like I remember there was, an, there was this article about athletes dealing with it. Um, there was a female basketball player, uh, Anya Covington, at the time. Uh, she played for Wisconsin's women's basketball team at 2009 through 2009, 2010. She said she she felt like she almost killed herself doing like some of the conditioning tests and stuff that they had to do for the women's basketball team. But the only reason why she got through it was like mentally. But she said technically with another with like another person with sickle cell probably wouldn't be able to complete it and do it because they get so tired. And she's actually she's actually fainted on the court a couple times once. Yeah. And there's been actually the study um, after in the early 2000s. There's been college football. There's been a known aspect of college football players with the sickle cell trait not either like either passing out like more frequently or or even related to death so like starting in 2010 all division one athletes were required to be screened for the sickle cell trait before they even get before they even get on the campus oh that's really interesting i didn't know that um just so you know these what we're talking about is one of the things that people when they do genetic testing of newborns it is one of the things that they can test for um, yeah, you know, right, right away when you're born and then you might know, but which is interesting. You mentioned just like feigning. Um, and I've mentioned things like pain or stroke, um, <laughs> but other complication, almost every organ system can be affected by this. It's basically low blood delivery, low oxygen to any organ. So you, you have your, your, your brain and, you know, and your nervous system can be affected. Your lungs can be affected, your gastrointestinal system and your liver can be affected your bones you know uh, leg ulcers and you know osteonecrosis you know are very very common in these things so you know it's it's you know it's susceptibility to infections almost every organ system of your body can be affected by somebody who has these sickle cell um, traits um, genetically and it's just something to be really really aware of so it's more than just Fainting and fainting can be dangerous, especially if you're in a sport that's moving or driving a car or anything or, or anything related um, like that. It can be pretty bad. Um, 
I also want to to put out there for you guys to think about it, it which is what I, I I went off on a little bit before is you know what what's the evolutionary advantage of having this disease that makes you tired that makes you know uh, you know increases the susceptibility for lung disease or increases the you know susceptibility of you know, leg ulcers or uh, pain and that that malarial thing um, is something to think about because we're in the middle of a pandemic here, right? And there are like in the last sort of wasn't really a pandemic, but the last epidemic that I just want to bring up. But let's, let's just call it the HIV epidemic. You know, a lot of before there were all the drug cocktails to keep people alive, there was a very very small, like just a, a handful of people who got infected with the HIV virus, but never really got AIDS and weren't on the path to dying. You know, they had some sort of genetic, you know, minuscule thing in a protein. Um, I think it was the CCR5, which is one of the proteins on some of their T cells that prevented the AIDS virus from getting into their body. And they could be infected and survive. What we're seeing, you know, and, you know, obviously the rest of the human population didn't die off and those people took their place. But at some point in human history, people who had this genetic, what we would call now a mutation in the globin genes, um, survive malarial infestations of society where people who didn't have it died very early deaths. Um, makes people wonder, is there a genetic mutation out there that would protect some people from the COVID-19 virus? So even if they were infected, they're not going to get sick and die. And the idea is if we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have all these things and we let natural selection sort of dominate who survives and who doesn't because we do a lot of things in society in terms of health and public health and all these things to, per, to sort of change the course of natural selection. You know, is this you know, SARS coronavirus too something that would change the path of human evolution that technology and science is altering because we're changing who lives and who survives. That that makes sense. I, I don't. I, I think like I don't think we know right now if when if genetically evolved like if there's gonna be a mutation to prevent that right now. But I feel like in some point, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we find something like that. Yeah, and, and for it to happen in terms of biology doesn't mean we have to know what it is, right? It just right. means that some people get infected and survive just fine because of whatever their genetic makeup might be. And I'm just saying. There are some evolutionary, perhaps, his, things from the past that might say, you know, this is certain, the COVID-19 thing is certainly not the first pandemic that has ever affected, you know, humans across the planet. Right. Just something to think about. Just something to think about. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, this is Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 thebronxcom We are recording from the remote Bronx studios with Tommy and Isaac. Thank you, guys. This program is part of the Rider University effort to bring people together to address many issues associated with health and healthcare. I hope today's conversation about sickle cell disease has given you stuff to think about. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 
at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.